This is Indomitable City. I'm Joshua Monmeni. Since introducing Indomitable City in December, I've been eager to talk about the origin of the show's title. From the time Sacramento was established in 1850, its continued existence was anything but guaranteed. It could have easily gone the way of most Gold Rush era towns and been relegated to the footnotes of history books. That Sacramento survived its first year of 1850 is astounding. It was a year so fraught with difficulty and disaster that historian Stephen Avela refers to it as Sacramento's Annus Horribilis. It's a Latin phrase which means year of great misfortune. Add to that the fact that it then survived the rest of the 1850s. In short, it had to be indomitable. So I thought we'd start the show by unpacking and taking a look at those first few years. Let me say at the outset that there's a lot of fascinating history surrounding Sacramento, all of which deserves a lot more time than I've allotted here. But some of the juicy details are forthcoming. We'll do a deeper historical dive over the next several episodes. For now, though, I'm going to use some pretty broad strokes here. Before we begin, I need to mention the names of a few key players who were integral to the founding of Sacramento. This episode isn't about them, but you need to know who they are because they figure prominently into this story. Let's start with John Sutter Sr. In case you hadn't heard, he was the first colonialist to settle in the area and establish his famous fort. Incidentally, he wasn't the founder of Sacramento. That honor goes to the next two fellows on the list. The first of which was John Sutter Jr., who traveled from Switzerland to take over his father's operations right around the time of the gold rush. And the second person was writer, editor, and land speculator Samuel Brannan. Sacramento definitely wouldn't be here without him. Okay, let's do a little backstory before we get into the 1850s. In 1839, John Sutter Sr. arrived in what was, at the time, the Mexican state of Nueva California. He petitioned for and was awarded a 44,000-acre land grant and was charged by the governor to establish a Swiss colony in the wilds of California's interior. He set out with a large contingent and a few native Miwok guides, who essentially deposited he and his entourage along the southern bank of the American River, just east of the confluence. The area had long been the home of multiple Valley Nisenan tribes, whom Sutter promptly employed, and in some cases even enslaved, so that he might exploit their labor to construct his fort and cultivate the surrounding plains. Over the next decade, though the fort was bustling, profits were fairly nominal. But all that changed in early 1848, when gold was discovered at Sutter's Mill in what is now Coloma. For his part, John Sutter Sr. wanted to keep the discovery secret, believing there was good money to be made in lumber and that gold would only be a sideshow. But a young entrepreneur operating a general store just outside the walls of the fort, one Samuel Brannan, soon learned of the discovery and seized upon the opportunity. He knew the promise of gold would draw people by the thousands and figured there was money to be made in much-needed mining equipment. Following the conclusion of the Mexican-American War, surplus army supplies had become stranded in California, which the military was all too happy to sell to Brandon for pennies on the dollar, and these could be repurposed and used in the mining process. Once his stores were stocked, the popular story tells of Brandon traveling to San Francisco, 
then called Yerba Buena, standing in the streets there and literally shouting that gold had been discovered in the hills above Sacramento. There may be some truth to this story. However, Brandon officially got the word out through his newspaper, The California Star. And things went exactly as he'd hoped. The first wave of miners arrived, and Brandon and company quickly outgrew the small dry goods store at Sutter's Fort and began seeking out a more advantageous location to set up shop. Years before, a portion of the riverfront had been cleared for use as a boat landing. It's the area that we know as Old Sacramento today, but was then known as Sutter's Embarcadero, and it looked a lot different. The location was this low slung, heavily wooded, swampy area at the confluence of two rivers, and it was clearly prone to flooding. By this time, John Sutter Jr. had taken over his father's operations, and in order to help pay down a number of substantial debts his father had racked up over the years, Sutter Jr. followed a plan laid out by Sam Brannan to develop the Embarcadero, despite its obvious drawbacks. And again, Brannan was right. Due to the ease with which would-be miners could disembark and immediately acquire the goods they needed to get mining operations underway, the location thrived. By late 1848, the California gold rush was in full swing, and schooner after schooner made its way up the river, regularly depositing miners, merchants, gamblers, and entertainers all seeking their fortunes. Fast forward to the middle of 1849, and Sacramento's population had ballooned exponentially. As one might imagine, given the rate of growth and influx of persons, the city soon devolved into squalor. James Winchester, a 49er at the time, wrote a letter to relatives and had this to say about it. Sacramento City contains more than 10,000 inhabitants. Most of the stores and houses are without floors, with canvas roofs and walls. No building is enclosed by a fence, but all are, as it were, in one immense open lot, one great cesspool of mud, offal, garbage, dead animals, and that worst of nuisances consequent upon the entire absence of outhouses. Yeah. Yuck. So, everything around you is made of extremely dry wood and canvas, you've got garbage and feces everywhere, and you're located squarely in a floodplain. What could possibly go wrong? Everything. The answer is everything. The first major disaster to strike Sacramento occurred sometime on the night of September 13, 1849. It was likely a candle that set a grain warehouse on the corner of 3rd and K Street ablaze. The fire quickly swept through all those canvas and timber structures and wiped out most of the surrounding city in less than a few hours. I can only imagine seeing the aftermath, but it must have been an utterly devastating sight. As bad as that must have been, however, things were about to get so much worse. Before we jump into 1850, however, there's some additional backstory that we need to go over that will help explain one of the more tragic events of that terrible year. Leading up to 1849, a small, affluent group of land speculators, among them Samuel Brannan, purchased most of the available plots of land in and around Sacramento City from John Sutter Jr. These speculators didn't simply corner the market they all out monopolized the land, which meant that as settlers began pouring into the region in search of gold, they were subject to the whims of these landowners. 
If a lot wasn't being subdivided and sold at exorbitant markups, then it was being rented out for camping, used as collateral to purchase stock, or simply stood vacant altogether without being for sale, all of which the newcomers found less than acceptable. In October of 1849, while the city was still recovering from the fire of September 13th, a settler named Z.M. Chapman built a log cabin on a vacant lot outside city limits. This act was promptly challenged by the alleged title holders. But when they couldn't produce evidence sufficient enough to convince Chapman of their ownership, he called into question not only their claim, but the validity of Sutter's original land grant, citing major discrepancies discovered in the documentation. Like, for example, the fact that the land the fort itself stood upon wasn't included in the boundaries of the grant. Sutter didn't technically own it, so it was surmised that neither he nor his son had the legal right to sell off either the fort or plots of land in the surrounding area. Feeling emboldened by Chapman's discovery, a large number of settlers began to squat on other vacant properties, much to the dismay of the land speculators, who in turn pressed both the legal system and the local legislature for redress, insisting that Sutter's right to sell the land be acknowledged and upheld. In response to the land speculators' legal actions, the squatters decided to organize themselves, and the Sacramento City Settlers Association was born. Initially, it was comprised of the gruff and uneducated, and it's hard to know if they were taken seriously in the beginning, but the group did gain influence after physician Charles Robinson and newspaper man James McClatchy joined their ranks. Charles Robinson would not only prove to be the voice of the movement, but went so far as to build his own cabin on an otherwise vacant city lot, which was promptly torn down. This caused tensions to flare between the squatters and the land speculators, and violence may well have erupted at this point, but the situation was temporarily diffused by two things. The first was the opening of the placer mines, which drew droves of people out of the city. The second was rain. It began to rain in December 1849 and continued without cease for weeks on end. At long last, we come to 1850 and Sacramento's Annus Horribilis. On January 8, 1850, the American River finally overflowed its crude levees. Sacramento was caught completely unprepared. The water rose so high and so fast that one young merchant named Theophile de Root found himself unable to escape his general store and became trapped there for multiple days. He later recounted that experience in a book. Tired of waiting and calling out, I resigned myself to spending a second night in company with the rats that seemed to be feasting on their sacks of flour. I followed suit and started to nibble on a few biscuits, but the fever had dulled my hunger. Besides, I was suffering more from a lack of water than of food. To bring up water, all I had to do by then was to stretch out my arm, the level having risen about 13 inches during the day, so it was only two and a half feet from me. If, at daybreak, the danger of being submerged had not passed, I had decided to break through the roof by attempting to raise one or two boards with my head, and then to straddle the peak and call and scream until a passerby might come and get me. And Deroot's late-game strategy made sense. The flood was so extensive that Sacramento had ostensibly become one vast lake. For several days in the aftermath, searching out clean water, food, and shelter required the few remaining residents to use rowboats to move about.
Now we come to the summer of 1850. The rivers have receded, new construction is going up, and settlers are making their way back to the city. But those would-be squatters I mentioned earlier? Well, they returned to a new set of laws enacted in support of the land speculators, making it illegal for anyone other than the deed holder to construct a dwelling on private property. This is not a good sign for the squatters. With the new statutes in place, the district attorney was eager to make an example of someone, and that someone turned out to be a squatter named John T. Madden. He was forcibly removed from a lot on 2nd and N Street and taken to court, where he lost the case brought against him. Following an unsuccessful appeal to the county court on the balmy morning of August 10th, tempers began to flare. Madden retook the claim and had to be removed yet again, during which James McClatchy and another sympathizer named Michael Moran were arrested by Sheriff Joseph McKinney for interfering in the second eviction. And this is where things really pop off. On the morning of August 14, 1850, Charles Robinson and a fellow named James Maloney began the day by forcibly retaking Madden's claim. Afterwards, in what I would describe as a victory lap, the two men led a motley band of roughly 50 squatters through the streets. While all this was happening, the authorities gathered themselves, trying to guess at the mob's intentions, thinking the crowd may try to spring James McClatchy and Michael Moran from jail. In the end, it became clear that there wasn't a larger plot afoot on the squatters' part, and after some meandering, the mob eventually wound up at the corners of 4th and J Street, where they were met by a large posse headed by Mayor Hardin Bigelow, who immediately ordered them to deliver up their arms and disperse. No sooner did the mayor issue the demand, when all hell broke loose. When the smoke cleared and the dust settled, Mayor Bigelow, Charles Robinson, and several others were severely wounded, while James Maloney, another squatter, and several bystanders, including a young boy, all lay dead. In the following days, Sheriff McKinney and others would also be killed in another shootout. In response to all this, Governor Burnett ordered a large military force, 500 strong, to be dispatched from Benicia to Sacramento to help keep the peace. In the aftermath, Sacramento was left traumatized. As summer came to a close and gave way to a humid fall, however, the city slowly began to recover, and California was admitted as the 31st State of the Union on September 9th. Things seemed to be looking up but not for long. On October 18th, a steamship brought both the news of California's statehood and a passenger infected with cholera. The bacteria quickly spread through the drinking water supply, and on the 20th of October, just two days after the steamship made birth, four people died. The following day, six more. The day after that, an additional 13. Five days later, another 31 people. And less than two weeks after the initial outbreak, 51 more would die in a single day. When the epidemic finally abated in early December, it's estimated that at least 600 people had succumbed, including 17 physicians. That is a lot of people. Anyway, at last, 1850 came to a close, and the decimated city was left to pick up the pieces and rebuild. For the next year and some months, while things weren't perfect, Sacramento enjoyed a period of growth and relative peace, even taking on an almost quaint, 
settled, urban feel. At least until November 2nd, 1852. That night, the city was struck by what has since been called the Great Fire. The blaze broke out in Madame Lano's millinery. That's a lady's hat shop. Stoked by a warm northerly breeze, it spread at a frightening pace. Frantically chased by multiple fire brigades, it enveloped building after building throughout the entire night. It was finally contained below present-day I Street early the next morning. In the end, the fire consumed a full seven-eighths of the city, roughly 55 city blocks. The damage was estimated to be in the neighborhood of $10 million. That's roughly $300 million by today's standards. As the 1850s wore on, there would be several more floods and a few more fires. Time and again, however, Sacramentans would not only rebuild their city, they would learn how to protect and dramatically improve it. Sturdier levees were constructed to hold back bulging rivers. Buildings were put on jack screws and raised some 20 feet to put them out of harm's way should the levees fail. The city passed a mandate requiring that all buildings in the business district be made of brick, making them much less susceptible to fire. And most ambitious of all, the American River itself was rerouted by half a mile, forcing it to follow a path farther north of the city. From the beginning, Sacramento showed considerable grit and learned to both adapt and endure, so much so that the ability to do so became a part of its identity. When Sacramento reincorporated on April 25, 1863, the newly minted city seal bore the phrase Herbs Indomita, Latin for Indomitable City. Make no mistake, Sacramento stands here today because it was a city that simply refused to die. Indomitable City is written and produced by me, Joshua Montmany. Copy editing and additional fact-checking was Anthony Sino. He's got his own podcast called Voices, River City. You should check it out. Additional sound engineering and much of the musical composition was done by the incomparable Stephen Ward. He's a badass. Our theme song is by Chipsy Cafe. The sweet voiceover acting you heard was provided by Spencer the Viking Bartlett and Spangled Creations in the United Kingdom, respectively. A big thank you goes out to James Scott, Amanda DeWild, and all of the staff at the Sacramento Room, without whom my research would be infinitely more difficult. Thank you also to Haley and Colleen Antonison for your support and understanding. And an extra special thanks to Lauren Camp, Bobby Castagna, and Nikki Soltis, without whom I wouldn't be doing this today. You can find Indomitable City on our website at indomitablecitypodcast.com, iTunes, and CastBox. We'll be adding the show to additional platforms in the near future as well. If you like the show, please consider rating us and giving us a review on iTunes. Unless you hated it. Then just pretend the last 20 minutes or so never happened. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.
Okay. <clears throat> Seriously. Drink some fucking water. 